Hey everyone, welcome back to Future Thinkers. Today our guest is Jim Rutt. Jim is a systems thinker, host of the Jim Rutt Show podcast, and former key player in several technology companies. He also used to be the chairman of the Santa Fe Institute, where he was working in the scientific study of consciousness and evolutionary artificial intelligence. We had Jim as a guest on the show about a year ago, where he did an introduction to the concept of Game B and talked about the history of the movement. You can find that episode at futurethinkers.org slash 105. And obviously a lot has happened in the world since then, and we wanted to catch up with Jim about some of the ways that concepts of Game B are being applied in practice. Before we begin, here's a brief description of what Game B is. So if Game A is the current Western civilization status quo, then Game B is a new civilization-level social operating system that at least hundreds of millions of people can live in. So it's not something just for elites or outliers, but it also doesn't imply that this has to be the default operating system for the whole world. Game B is something that doesn't yet exist. It's what perhaps comes next. And we can guess some of the principles of what Game B might be like. It's self-organizational rather than top-down. It's network-oriented rather than individualist. It's decentralized rather than centralized. And it's metastable, meaning that it's evolving but not volatile. And finally, it's oriented towards human flourishing. And I would add that it should also be oriented towards the flourishing of non-human life as well. Earlier this year, Jim published a great Medium article called A Journey to Game B, which lists a lot of practical steps for transitioning into this new social operating system. And we mentioned this article quite a few times throughout this episode. To get the show notes from this episode, go to futurethinkers.org slash 133. And to learn more about the Future Thinkers Smart Village project, go to futurethinkers.org slash village. All right, let's do this. Hey, this is Future Thinkers, where we talk about how to adapt to a changing world, build more resilience, upgrade culture and society, and create meaning and purpose. With your hosts, Mike Gitteland and Yuvi Ivanova. All right, Jim, welcome back. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Glad we're getting a chance to talk with you more. We just did the podcast episode with you a few last week, was it? Something like that. Um, and I always enjoy these conversations. So today we're hoping to talk to you a little more about Game B, Proto Bs, and some of the projects you're working on now. Yeah, so sounds welcome. great. Yeah, uh, love to do it. Certainly enjoyed having you guys on the, the Jim Rutt show a couple of weeks back, and uh, you know, look forward to having our conversation today. Always interested. Cool. So the last time we talked on Future Thinkers was at least a year ago. Maybe it was longer. Um, I'm kind of wondering what's happening in the world of Game B. What's new since we ch- we chatted? What's going on in the last year? Uh, I would say that the biggest new thing is increased attention to the practical and the real and uh, less emphasis on theory. Yes, there are still plenty of people working the theory, and that's a good thing. Uh, but my strong sense uh, is that where the energy in the community today is, is moving towards an, an increasing rate uh, to actually doing things. Uh, Proto-bees, which are the idea of on-the-ground communities of various sorts, various forms in various places. And Game B Ventures, the idea of uh, business entities uh, set up specifically to use uh, you know, the Game B operating system ideas uh, as their basis and yet be able to outcompete game A at its own game, so-called parasitizing game A. Cool, very interesting. Uh, and, there, and I would say there uh, is a closely related idea uh, called Civium, uh, which is also in the game B orbit, which is essentially proto-Bs 
uh, with some additional interesting uh, ideas added to it. And I totally endorse uh, the Civium extensions as one possibility for protobees. Cool. Yes, and this is Jordan Hall's ideas. Correct. And uh, he and I have had some very intense discussions lately, and uh, he and I are jointly designing an economic slash monetary system for Civium. Very oh, wow. cool. Love to hear about that. In fact, that's the conversation we just wrapped up before we jumped in <clears throat> with you today. Um, what does the economic system look like in a Game B society? Yeah, and uh, truthfully, we don't know the answer yet. Uh, but we're, you know, we have some principles. Uh, you know, I think some of the uh, key principles are we certainly have to get away from the game theoretic uh, hyper competition, which the uh, game A ecosystem produces, where we all are involved in a race to the bottom or to screw each other and, and not in a good way, uh, uh, et cetera. And so how do you diffuse you know, game theory dynamics? When, by definition, game theory is what you do when you have a certain kind of game. So you have to have a different kind of game with different ways of uh, keeping score uh, that don't produce these uh, you know, race conditions, essentially. Uh, where society just wants to drive itself over a cliff and has no sense of limits, no sense of what it's trying to optimize other than what I would describe the game A world is trying to optimize short-term money on money return and nothing else. Uh, in a game B system, other values have to predominate over money on money return. Not to say that economic reality can be ignored. It can't be, but it can't be the only value. Yeah, we were just talking about, um, you know, how do you measure merit? and uh, whether meritocracy is the right way to go, because a lot of the Western societal systems are built on meritocracy, or at least the illusion of meritocracy. And I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, there are certain very valuable things that are just not accounted for in that kind of system. For example, the relationship between a mother and a child. And, you know, how do you support that in a healthy way? You know, a society where a mother has to choose between uh, breastfeeding and working for money is a deeply sick society in my mind. But in a meritocratic society, there's no problem with this. You know, you just. <laughs> yeah, well, at least on in the definition of merit, where it means optimizing short term money on money return. for yes. sure. And I would say that that is a uh, perfect example of the brokenness of our society. And at least my version of proto-bees, and I would also speak for Jordan here, he and I have talked about this very explicitly, uh, the center of the design has got to be for uh, young families of children and the ecosystem for raising children in a, to be excellent citizens of the future and not in ways that don't destroy the uh, opportunities for women in particular uh, and allows communities of women and men uh, to work together uh, to create uh, a good environment to be parents and to raise wonderful children. Uh, and any society that doesn't have that at its core of values is probably very wrongheaded. I would never have really deeply understood this until after having our first kid and recognizing how those priorities have shifted and how that is so central to the development of a civilization, that, that how you raise and educate the next generation is where all the change happens. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I really appreciate that that's at the center of your model here. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, 
that's been at the center of my model for a very long time. Uh, it's been recently reinforced. I'm a new grandfather. So it gives Congrats. me yet another generation I have to worry about uh, making sure that the systems hold together for them. Uh, and, you know, they get this of the essence of it. And I think that's actually one of the problems of uh, some forms of uh, social change movement that where there's an overrepresentation of single young people. Uh, and, you know, they're what they think are important if they haven't stopped and thought about it deeply, uh, you know, might be, you know, having fun, hooking up with the right people, you know, uh, not being oppressed by the man, you know, those are all, you know, useful things when you're 23. Uh, but when the time comes to, you know, settle down and have a family and uh, uh, replicate uh, the human species in the next generation, uh, those things become secondary uh, compared to the main mission uh, that the human race has got to put on, uh, family life, uh, education, and acculturation uh, for the next generation, an opportunity for the next generation. It really makes you wonder how the political and activism uh, debates and conversations would sh would shift if there were more parents taking part in the conversation instead of single young people. Absolutely. Uh, and truthfully, part of that has uh, been a demographic transition. Uh, you know, uh, my mother, uh, got married when she was 20. Uh, you know, my wife got married when she was 22. Uh, and, uh, you know, these days, the typical age for a woman to get married is what, about 29, something like that. Uh, and so the children are coming much later. And so there's a, a much longer period of playing the single social game uh, than there was, than there, than there used to be. In fact, uh, uh, in, you know, go back further in time, uh, you know, mothers having children under 16, 17 was not at all atypical. Uh, and younger than that was not not uncommon. And so I think it's, uh, I would argue, a somewhat unfortunate side effect of this demographic transition towards much older uh, childbearing that produces a disproportionate amount of activist uh, voice from people who, who are not yet focused on this most important uh, aspect of uh, how we organize our society. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I mean, uh, there's something to be said for waiting till you're older to have children. Uh, on the other hand, there's something lost as well. Well, you know, feeling the pressure of it and for us waiting so long, it really had to do with our economic situation, uh, you know, how well prepped we felt we were to be able to guide our child through what's going on in the world now. And obviously a lot of that's just like grasping for control. You never know how you're going to be able to guide them through it. But the financial stability, I think, is something a lot of young people share. They just don't feel like they can possibly afford it. Yeah, and exa exactly. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, uh, Brett Weinstein co uh, coined the expression, the very earliest game B days, cultivated insecurity. Uh, tr truth is, in any Western society, you probably aren't going to starve to death, right? One way or the other, you'll probably survive. But you've gotten these expectations of how you're supposed to live. Uh, that uh, that if you don't have that provides a cultivated insecurity. And of course, there's real insecurity. I and mean, at least in the United States, you could end up on the street. Uh, now, if you have any social capital, you'll end up in somebody's uh, on somebody's couch. Uh, but uh, that kind of insecurity is not really suitable for raising children. And uh, in my uh, A Journey to Game B, the essay I wrote about a lot of this that's on Medium, uh, one of the things I laid out is if you're a member of a Game B, Proto B, you will never be homeless, period, 
right? That's a commitment that the community will make to you. Uh, that so long as you're a member in good standing of the community, uh, you have a place to live no matter what happens to you economically. And that applies to your children as well. And that's the way it used to be, you know. Uh, you know, I remember my one of my father's brothers was yeah, a bit of a ne'er do well, drank way too much, uh, occasionally get in trouble with the law, and you know, he'd have a place to live for a while, and then he'd be living in, in uh, my grandmother's attic for a couple of years. Uh, you know, uh, it used to be we took care of people, uh, families, extended families took care of people, uh, but now with everybody atomized to the four winds. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things would be great to ask your audience uh, is how many of you live within an hour's drive of where you grew up? Uh, and I suspect the answer is not a whole lot. Uh, and so that rooted uh, extended family as a fallback uh, is gone. And I think that's one of the things that we're looking at with protobees is to replace the security, the fallback security of an extended family hopefully without some of the neurotic shit that comes with extended families uh, as a place where people can, can feel even from a young age that they are secure, that they and their children will always have a place to live and always have food. Yeah. So that's actually a great uh, way to talk about this. What are some of the uh, kind of minimum viable features of a protobee community in your mind? That's a good question. And I will say that I am a great believer in high dimensional exploration of design space. Uh, so anything I say is just my goddamn opinion and people shouldn't take it too seriously. And they should, uh, if, they do, if they think I'm full of shit, go try something else. Because I do believe the whole Proto B uh, movement should be about trying different configurations and find, figuring out what works. Uh, but uh, to at least one form of proto B uh, that's uh, co-located on a physical piece of property. Uh, I would expect that the minimum con con constituents there are housing, food, and childcare uh, as essentially the, the minimum. And uh, childcare, it doesn't seem like it's as obvious, at least in the United States as the other two. Uh, but uh, one of the uh, historical predecessors I studied carefully is the Israeli kibbutz. And something they did that was, uh, that was just sort of fundamental to their operating system is that childcare is a built-in service in the kibbutz. Uh, there are people who provide childcare, they're paid, they're paid the same, by the way, as an engineer or a lawyer. Uh, so uh, being a childcare professional is not a second class uh, occupation on an Israeli kibbutz, at least in the original Israeli kibbutzes. And so that, uh, you know, if a mother uh, chooses as, or a father uh, chooses as their line of work, something that isn't necessarily highly congruent with childcare, there is a very solid uh, provision of childcare built into the operating system of the kibbutz. And certainly in the proto-bees that, uh, you know, I would like to see, I would like to see that, uh, that part of it. Uh, I think pretty much everything else is uh, up for grabs, uh, but uh, you should always have a roof over your head, uh, food, and childcare. Yeah, some of the things that you also talked about in in your journey to Game B article are the sort of uh, core assumptions of a Game B civilization in general, which is that it's uh, probably going to be decentralized rather than centralized. Uh, it's network-oriented rather than individual-oriented. It's meta-stable, meaning that it's, uh, even though it might evolve over time, there are some sort of core principles that, that persevere. 
uh, rather than it being self-terminating in some way. And, and self-organizing is a key one. Yes. Uh, and so if we want to go into the essentially the values of game B, those are exactly it. And, uh, and you could describe self-organizing as essentially a new kind of governance. We, we really need to learn how to govern in a way that's not top down. So much of game A is, you know, we go to school, we have a teacher telling us what to do. We go to work, we have a boss telling us what to do. And uh, I think the core vision of game B is not that that we have to learn to cooperatively manage each other and manage as a group. Doesn't mean someone isn't a boss for a while for some task, right? I call task-oriented leadership versus position-oriented leadership. Uh, so if we're out you know, planting watermelons, the person that knows the most about how to plant watermelons uh, gives guidance to those of us who know less about planting watermelons. Uh, while if we're uh, building a, a barn, the person that knows more about uh, building a barn is the one that will be the leader on that day and for or for that project, and so I think those are you know those are essentially some of the fundamentals, uh, and then you know other fundamentals uh, in terms of values. I think this is very very critical and should be part of the uh, the deep design of anything that wants to call itself a proto V. Is we have to be attempting to minimize our footprint on the Earth. Uh, I think I called out in that article that every proto V should do a regular. Uh, greenhouse gas audit, for instance, and an honest one uh, on, all right, what is our impact on how we're doing things? Uh, you know, can we do better? Uh, you know, to what degree are we, are we depending on, uh, you know, grid-based electricity versus our own PV? You know, by the way, uh, photovoltaics uh, are uh, less straightforward than you think. To, uh, to buy and build the photovoltaics is actually a gigantic cost of energy, uh, which takes four or five years to pay back. So you'll get a big bump up in your greenhouse footprint the first year you put in PV, uh, and then it'll go way down the second year, and then the two will cross uh, to where you were with respect to uh, grid-based electricity four or five, six years, depending on uh, electric rates and, uh, and the fuels that are being used uh, where you live. Uh, and so it, it needs to be a full, you know, deep multidimensional audit. Uh, you know, if you live in Iceland and most of the electricity is being generated by uh, geothermal, then you probably don't want to spend money on PV. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that Iceland's far north and has cloudy winters, another reason you probably don't. And so, you know, it can't just be feel good. Oh, yeah, photovoltaics, always good. Uh, well, good in many cases, but not in others. Mm-hmm. And another uh, factor that you talked about is, uh, at least in your personal opinion, that these communities should be focused on human flourishing. Yes, that uh, that should be the uh, fitness function rather than money on money or return. Uh, you know, and each community, by the way, should uh, adopt its own view of what human flourishing means. And this is an area where even if people are using somewhat similar uh, economic and social operating systems, uh, they really ought to, by some form of consensus process, uh, define what does human flourishing mean? Does it mean self-actualization, uh, which is kind of an individualistic perspective? Uh, does it mean uh, high social coherence, uh, which is another possibility? Or my favorite, which uh, I don't remember who came up with this, but they steered me to it in a debate, uh, which is uh, 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 self-actualization, which actualizes itself as building high co coherence community, which increases human self-actualization. So we have we operate at both levels simultaneously. Now, uh, those words sort of make sense, uh, but you need to go from those words to some actual architecture 
uh, and some way of measuring uh, in a community uh, that you're actually achieving uh, some vision of that sort in your community. And so every design decision ought to be made with human flourishing, however one defines it, as what guides the decision making. You know, that's that's actually a big deal here. Governance, human decision making, um, consensus. I mean, you've got a fair amount of experience with this, and we, there's been a public demonstration of it with the Game B Facebook group and kind of having bad actors come in and then how you guys have dealt with it has been very uh, interesting, and I, I appreciate the way you've approached it. So how do you, uh, what kind of techniques, what do you do to reach group consensus and sense-making? Uh, unfortunately, the tools that we have aren't the greatest uh, these days, and that's an area where I personally would like to see a lot more investment uh, and an area where... Uh, you know, I hope personally to be able to contribute is to be able to build, uh, uh, you know, good governance tools. And in fact, one of our Game B spin out uh, communities is called uh, Game B Governance as a Service, uh, which is a pointer, at least, uh, to an effort that needs to be done so that when people want to launch Proto B's or uh, Game B uh, Ventures, uh, they don't have to invent all this stuff themselves from, from scratch. On the other hand, these frameworks need to have a fair amount of flexibility so that people can choose different parameter settings for, um, you know, how they uh, choose to do governance. Uh, you know, the Game B group exercise was uh, kind of interesting, illuminating, educational, and frustrating all at the same time because uh, the tools that Facebook provides for a group are very minimal uh, in terms of, uh, you know, dealing with bad actors, uh, you know, reaching consensus, uh, et cetera. And so we had to build a whole bunch of kind of side processes uh, to uh, uh, to deal with it. And uh, I wouldn't say that by any means uh, our processes were optimal. Uh, but uh, as you said, we did uh, come to some decisions and we did act. Uh, uh, the part that I don't like about how we did it uh, was that the they that did it were the administrators, which is a group of seven or eight of us that have, uh, you know, Truthfully, uh, I started the group, and so I am so-called a lead admin, uh, which gives me certain powers in, under the Facebook architecture, one of which is uh, appointing admins and uh, firing admins. Uh, and so I just invited uh, a couple of people initially when I went on one of my periodic six-month uh, Facebook uh, sabbaticals, which I do every year. I appointed uh, Jordan Hall and Sharon Lewis as co-admins in my absence. Uh, they, those were the first non-me admins, and they added some structure and some process. And uh, then uh, we had in early uh, 2020, we added uh, 2019, 2019, I guess. Uh, we added some more uh, admins, and then and we just kept adding them and adding them. But the you know the problem is uh, there's no principal democratic way to add or subtract admins. Uh, and I would very much like if I were to do something as crazy as to design the replacement for Facebook and Twitter, which I occasionally think about doing at three o'clock in the morning, I would build it from a governance first perspective. Uh, and, you know, say, for instance, something like a Facebook group, once it got past, uh, say, the Dunbar number of 150, uh, I would like to see a democratic mechanism by which the admins are appointed to a finite term. And they either get reelected or we elect somebody new. Uh, and I think that would frankly help a lot because, you know, there was some legitimate criticism. Who are you seven people to decide who to boot? And we go, well, unfortunately, there's no other way. We can't really have a discussion with 2,500 members. That's not going to work. Uh, and, uh, you know, the only other 
body that exists is the admins and, and we're the ones that have the de jure power uh, as granted to us by the Facebook platform. That's another thing to realize that these platforms, code is law. You know, it's quite interesting. Uh, you know, there's this very complicated emergent law uh, that comes from the powers of admins and moderators and lead admins, and they can go to war with each other. It's you know like something like Game of Thrones in theory. Uh, we've always we've always managed to avoid that in the game B world, but it could happen. I've seen it happen in other groups. And thinking that thing yeah, is not was not set with thought through. Whoever designed it for Facebook, it was clearly an afterthought. And I think it would be hugely wonderful to have a group architecture for you know multi-group architecture where governance was. Uh, brought in from the beginning. I'll give you an example. This is something I was talking with Jordan about uh, the other day when he, he and Vanessa stopped by uh, our farm uh, for a while for us to catch up and chat, uh, is wouldn't it be nice if groups could establish a set of rules? Uh, the Game B group does have a set of rules, uh, like 10 or 11, something like that. And if you wanted to ban a post or boot a person, but let's just say ban a post, uh, which happens much more often than booting a person, uh, an admin might tag the post or maybe even any user might tag a post, you know, violates rule three, no spam, right? Uh, even on the Game B group today, more often than you'd think, somebody comes in and posts some obviously self-serving spam pointing to their, uh, you know, expensive uh, uh, meditation app or something. Bing, we ping it right off. Uh, but it would kind of be nice if it wasn't just us doing that. Instead, someone would flag it and it would go to a jury. Uh, a randomly selected jury of, of active users. <laughs> and if nine out of 12 voted to ping to boot it, it would be booted. Uh, I think that would be uh, just an example of, you know, whether it would work or not. I think it would, but uh, an example of more emergent, self-organizing, bottom-up, democratic-style governance uh, rather than, uh, than what we have. And all this kind of thinking applies to how you're going to run a proto-B. Uh, you know, if we look at the uh, kibbutz, again, is the one I found to be the richest model. Uh, the original kibbutz were uh, very committed uh, utopian socialists. And uh, they believed that uh, governance should be by the community of the, as a whole. So the only official governing body uh, in the original kibbutzes was the Saturday night meeting after dinner where all the members talked endlessly and attempted to reach consensus on decisions. And uh, it worked when they were small, but when they got you know, even close to the Dunbar numbers started to break down and they uh, quickly realized they need to appoint committees. Uh, they did do some things like had term limits on committees. Uh, you could only be on the committee for three years. Oftentimes uh, there were even some leadership uh, positions that were appointed like plant manager when they started getting into industry. But again, they term limited them. Uh, and so, and, but they did not think about it in advance. They essentially adapted on the fly and some did better and some did worse. Uh, and they probably in retrospect, uh, you know, could have invested more uh, in thinking through their governance structure. And it's one of the things I uh, hope the work that we're doing in the uh, Proto-B incubator uh, will lead to uh, at least some paper sketches on governance mechanisms uh, for Proto-Bs. Yeah, you know, this has been a, a hot conversation topic in our family recently with um, the U.S. elections and we're, we are having another election in Canada right now, uh, in, actually in British Columbia. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism about the existing system, the representative democracy. So we've been discussing 
different voting mechanisms and different ways to engage politically that would probably get more people, um, more young people engaged if they could vote on issues. So I'm I'm curious what kind of tools that you've researched that you think would be an improvement on the existing system, or if you were to rebuild Facebook, what kind of tools would you build into it? Well, the thing I personally have studied the most and have written about quite a bit, I think I've got four or five essays on Medium on it, on uh, liquid democracy. Uh, liquid democracy is also known as uh, delegative proxy voting. And I've added a wrinkle to it. And this is my version of liquid democracy, uh, which is that uh, you know, first, uh, what is uh, delegative proxy voting or liquid democracy? The idea is everybody has a vote. And in some absolute sense, uh, we're talking about a direct democracy where in theory, everybody could vote on every issue. Uh, the reality, however, is that most people don't have the expertise, the time, or even or the interest to vote on every issue. So you can delegate your vote to somebody else. And uh, let's in, in my version of it, I added uh, issue areas where there can be an arbitrary number of issue areas that are set up, and each each person can even have a different uh, set of issue areas that, in which they divide their proxy up. So let's for, say, for instance, uh, I'm in the United States, and we're talking about liquid democracy at the, na the nation state level. I might proxy my uh, vote on healthcare to my doctor, uh, my uh, vote on education to my very favorite fifth grade teacher, uh, and I might proxy my defense vote to uh, my uncle, who's a retired Air Force colonel, but a, but a uh, pacifist nonetheless. Uh, so he's both knowledgeable, but not a war hawk. Uh, I might proxy my environmental vote to the Sierra Club, and I might uh, proxy my uh, gun control vote to the NRA, God damn it. Uh, and uh, uh, people would say, God damn, there's no political party that is anything like that. And I go, yeah. exactly. Here I have been able to represent uh, how I want my votes uh, allocated uh, in ways that aren't necessarily attracted to a polarized uh, single dimensional system. You know, this, the Anglo-Saxon world has done pretty well for itself in terms of governance. However, it has introduced that one bad idea and that's the first past the post election concept where, you know, especially for the legislature, uh, you know, whoever gets the most votes wins. And that dynamic of that ends up typically with a two-party system that are polarized left and right. When in reality, there's many, many, many more dimensions, right? Uh, you know, uh, and I'm a good example of it. I don't fit into either of those parties. I feel like I'm orthogonal to both. And liquid democracy allows you to represent who you are in as many dimensions as you choose to participate in your delegation. Further, uh, as like I said, it's it's also direct democracy. So let's say, for instance, in the United States, it's uh, 2003, and the vote's coming up. Uh, should we go to war in Iraq? And I've delegated my vote to my uncle, but I don't quite trust him on that one. And so I can vote on any individual issue I want, and it overrides my delegations. So if I periodically see something really important, I can say, "Let me put my foot down on that one." God damn it and it overrides any delegations uh, I might have made. Further, I can uh, revoke any delegations at any time and either uh, bring them back to myself or delegate them to somebody else. Like, ah, damn, Uncle Charlie's getting awful hawkish in his old age. Uh, you know, let me delegate uh, to the Quaker church, for instance, my defense vote. Uh, and I can do that whenever I want. 
and there's never any elections. That's the other cool thing about it. So there's no just blinding, screaming bullshit that is, uh, you know, partisan elections uh, in almost every place in the West that has them. Uh, and that's why they call it liquid. It's constantly flowing and changing. And there's obviously a national conversation about topics, but there's no, uh, you know, cut and dried election uh, that causes everybody to scream and yell at each other for, you know, six months or in the United States for two fucking years, God damn it, right? Uh, and so I think liquid democracy uh, is well worth looking at. And I'd love to see it tried at the proto-B level. I do warn in my essays that I would not try it at the nation state level until it's been tried at smaller levels because uh, it sounds good on paper, uh, but as a complexity science guy, one of the things I know is that the ability to predict with certainty the unfoldings of high dimensional complex social systems uh, is small. And so experiment at low cost, see what happens. If it works, scale it up, turns out to be a shit show, get rid of it. And I would say uh, liquid democracy is, uh, it fits in that category. I'm very, very hopeful that it has a tremendous amount of pluses of the sort that I laid out, but it might have some unanticipated uh, side effects. Maybe it's a uh, fertile ground for uh, you know, sociopaths. I don't know, uh, but uh, I think that in the right place, uh, it could be good. Uh, some of the other tools uh, that are talked about are uh, ranked choice voting, uh, rather than voting for one person uh, for, let's say, uh, a legislator legislative seat, uh, you can vote for any of them that, that are running and rank them in order. And there's a mechanism, an algorithm uh, for how your votes are counted. Essentially, uh, your first choice vote counts first, and then all everybody's first cat chats, uh, choice votes are uh, tabulated, and the bottom candidate with the least votes gets kicked out and then all those people's second choice votes go back into the system. And then the, the person with the least vote gets kicked out. And then the third uh, or the next uh, choice, which could be their second or third choice votes uh, flow into the system until somebody reaches a majority. Uh, that allows much more room for minority uh, parties, uh, multiple candidates from different perspectives. But to my mind, it still ends up with one setting uh, unlike liquid democracy, which allows each person to set their own high dimensional configuration of uh, what they like in, uh, in uh, choice space. Uh, the other, uh, another variant for elections is called range voting, um, which in, let's say you get 10 votes uh, for uh, the legislative seat and you can put all 10 on your favorite candidate or you can spread them across multiple candidates. And you just add the scores up and whoever wins, wins. Uh, there's theoretical arguments between the proponents of ranked choice and range choice voting. Uh, and I have not done enough research to come up with a, with a uh, solid principle on that. Uh, but those are you know, uh, two other uh, tweaks to the representative democracy model that isn't as, isn't as radical as uh, liquid democracy. And let me add one of my favorites, and this might be perfect for proto-bees. Uh, a guy named Forrest Landry, who's a very interesting thinker in the game bee space. I had him on my podcast once, and I just finished an episode with him uh, a week ago, and he's going to come back again uh, in a month, so uh, maybe, three, maybe, maybe two more times. And uh, he's got a very cool idea, which is uh, a group should start, and it will only work for a small-ish group, uh, he believes it could work for 50 maybe. Uh, he's unsure about 150. 
but let's let's assume it would work for a proto B in the early stages. And that is that the entity falls into consensus uh, first. And the only thing that consensus does is it defines an executive function. And uh, that could be committees, it could be a, mem a way how committees reappoint themselves, et cetera. Uh, it includes the personnel who are the first members of the committees, et cetera. Uh, and then uh, when the consensus process is done and the consensus is reached on the executive function, uh, the consensus disappears and the executive does its thing. Uh, and the, what the, the only democratic feature left is the red button, as I call it. Uh, I don't know if force likes the red button, which is at any time, uh, a majority of people uh, can say that uh, we want to cancel the current executive, press the red button, in which case the executive is dissolved on the spot <laughs> and the entity goes back into consensus uh, with the only goal as to define as to define a new executive. Cool. Yeah, that's mm. interesting. It is interesting. I mean, it's hyper democratic at one level because it requires consensus to build the democrat uh, to build the executive, but then the de the executive is not democratic at all uh, because it requires no uh, you know, democratic approval of anything that it does. However, it's disciplined by the red button. Uh, and, and so in some sense, it avoids, uh, you know, the screaming and yelling of partisan elections. It's another way, the same way liquid democracy does not have partisan elections. Uh, the Forrest Landry system uh, also avoids that. And again, I think it's the kind of uh, idea that'd be worth testing uh, by some group. And one of the reasons I hope there, there to be multiple proto bees trying different governance mechanisms uh, so that we can see uh, what does work uh, and uh, you know, educate each other horizontally on, hey, this worked, uh, this didn't work, this sort of worked, all right? Uh, and then the next person, the next group of people that want to build a proto B can pick and choose of, of what we've seen and what we've experienced. So one question that comes up for me is um, we talk about proto Bs and it seems that there's a lot of similarities with you know kibbutzes or intentional communities, but what is actually something that makes them different? Well, I think they fit into the broad category of intentional communities. Uh, they're a kind of intentional community. Uh, and uh, at least, again, my perspective, uh, compared to say some of the traditional American intentional communities, which, and, and Israeli kibbutzes too, which were very doctrinaire and often isolated from their wider communities. Uh, my flavor, at least, of Proto-B uh, and one of the parts of the uh, design space is uh, how open or closed do you want your Proto-B to be? And I'd argue in the early days, you want to be pretty open. Uh, you know, you don't want everybody to be working on the Proto-B only. Lots of people work out in their, in jobs in the community, or work remotely. Uh, you know, I've strongly encouraged in my uh, article uh, for instance, that maybe the uh, Proto-B offers a charter school, which is open to the community. Uh, I strongly encourage simple things like uh, members of the Proto-B should be members of the volunteer fire department, and they should uh, you know, uh, be part of the county fair planning committee, uh, and they should have a softball team that plays in the rec leagues, and you know, uh, it, they, it should be open uh, to the community rather than, uh, rather than closed. And uh, again, I think that also is a good um, um, you know, 
prophylactic against one of the historical failure modes of intentional communities, which is capture by gurus or cult leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, and I talk quite a bit, a bit in my essay about uh, trying to build an immune system against cult leaders or gurus uh, trying to take control of community, a known fa uh, failure mode uh, on, on those. I mean, the same applies for things like uh, health, how self-sufficient do you want to be on food? Uh, I think a lot of that depends on where you're at. If you're in a place with great agriculture, uh, then it may be sensible to be significantly self-reliant on food. Uh, if you're in inner city Detroit, probably less so. Uh, you know, and a place like uh, mountains of British Columbia, probably somewhere in between. Uh, and so just be practical. Uh, don't be doctrinaire. Don't be ideological. Uh, I think that's, uh, uh, to, to my mind, one of the one of the things that uh, would dif differentiate us from many exemplars of at least American and also the Israeli kibbutz uh, movements. Be practical, pragmatic. Yeah, it seems that another um, way that protobees would might be different is the knowledge sharing across different protobees in the network component. Yep, and I will say the uh, Israeli kibbutzes were pretty good at that. Uh, they had three different styles of kibbutz, and the three different styles had associations, and they did share information across uh, within their associations. So the associations competed with each other. So, and they also had an association of associations, but those were mostly screaming matches. Uh, but but we certainly like to steal and extend very considerably uh, the idea of horizontal uh, communications of what works and what doesn't work. Uh, the original game being named for that was something called X in a Box. It's a weird name. Uh, it has some historical uh, resonance why it was called that. And the idea is that uh, people in Proto Bs or really anywhere in the game B world that find something that works should document it and put it in a place where other people can find it and take it and extend it. And we called it X in a box. I think it was based on Kraft macaroni and cheese originally, uh, where, you know, Kraft macaroni and cheese, uh, we've all eaten lots of it. And uh, once we got uh, older and about nine, we didn't like it just the way it was. We added our own ingredients to it. Uh, so, you know, think of, uh, let's say, a governance system. Here's the X in the box. Here's the Kraft macaroni and cheese governance system. Let's open it up. Mm, eh, it's okay. But let me add some hamburger and a little bit of real cheese to it. It'd be better. Uh, and so I think that's, uh, that's important. Uh, the Sibium idea that Jordan Hall's been working on takes that uh, a step further uh, and some of the work he and I are now doing on economic and monetary systems uh, for the Civium uh, uh, could see the proto the the physical on the ground communities being linked uh, with live uh, relationships around things like ventures. For instance, the venture uh, could easily exist on multiple proto B locations and could be embedded in a Civium uh, uh, economic operating system uh, that makes the, the boundaries between the proto-Bs uh, almost non-existent, particularly when it comes to uh, you know, cooperating on, uh, on businesses. And I, I also uh, long uh, uh, encourage that when proto-Bs do set up, that they encourage movement amongst proto-Bs. Because one of the things people are going to find is the first community they live in may not be right for them. Uh, it may be that the social norms that evolve, uh, hopefully bottom up, uh, but nonetheless don't feel right. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, if there's multiple proto-bees and you say, well, this one over here sounds a little bit more like my cup of tea, uh, then we ought to have relatively low barriers for people to migrate from one proto-bee to another. 
further, if we have many proto bees, some of them are going to fail. Uh, we can pretty much count on it. Uh, and we should have a culture of accept, accepting refugees from other proto-bees, though uh, every proto-bee needs to have its acceptance criteria. And while we may give a, a plus vote for a migrant or a uh, refugee from another proto-bee, uh, we still should not accept people that don't fit uh, within the cultural norms of any given proto-bee. So it's, there's a bit of balance there. Pragmatism. I kind of wanted to jump back a little bit into the uh, liquid democracy um, subject because that one's been particularly interesting for me. And I'm looking at ways that that system breaks down. Um, and one thing that someone brought up to me recently is uh, the problem with buying votes. How do you deal with that? Mm, it's a good question. Um, let me think about that. I did think about this once before. Uh, well, here's the answer. It's uh, unfortunately, it may be less of an issue. It may, it may be more feasible at the proto B level than the nation state uh, level. Uh, in the, let's take, take the United States, a hell of a lot easier to buy 435 congressmen uh, than it is to buy 150 million voters. Right. Uh, and so, actually, the current system is way more susceptible to being bought than a liquid democracy system is. Uh, and you could argue that, well, your your proxies could be bought. Well, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of proxy holders, probably. So again, from a practical perspective, at the nation state level, uh, while not perfect, it's a lot better uh, than you know the current uh, representative democracy, where it's a very small number of people that can either be bought, blackmailed, uh, you know, their kids given uh, you know fancy jobs, what have you. So. Uh, I'm less worried about it at the yeah, that's, state level. That's a good point too. And if you're going to bribe or coerce people at that level, you're going to end up being very public about it anyway. Like, yeah, you, exactly. Hey, yeah. you can't buy off 150 million people or even 5 million people or even yeah. 50,000 people yeah. uh, without uh, the word coming out. Yeah. Uh, in a, in a uh, intentional community, I expect the, uh, the answer is that uh, it would be damn close to impossible to do without somebody finding out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, again, it's, it's a gossipy, close-knit community. Uh, would, you, would you risk it? You know, all it takes is one person to defect and you'd be thrown out. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, one person could pretend to play along with you, record what you're saying and post it on the community bulletin board. Uh, so I would say that uh, probably the answer is that the community should be educated that this is a potential failure mode and it's all of our duty to be aware and to report any such attempt. And it should be considered in the bylaws a death penalty infraction. Anyone that tries to do that should be expelled. Uh, do you think anonymity plays a role in a liquid democracy setup? My view is no. I believe that everything should be on the record. Interesting. Okay, what about uh, being pseudonymous? So, no. Really? Okay. Nope. I what am, if it's verifiable in code, but not checkable? I know, I know, I'm, I know all about this. I've gone down the rat hole of pseudo-anonymity with okay. all the blockchain boys. I have long yep. conversations with my friend David Brin about it. And my answer is no, okay. uh, that every public action should be on the record. Interesting. There should be cutouts for very, very sensitive things like, you know, uh, uh, domestic abuse support groups or uh, disease support groups and things of that sort. But in general, uh, the default should be uh, very strong, real name ID. Uh, I've been doing this online thing for 39 years now. And I've seen real name and I've seen anonymous. 
And I've even, you know, even in one of my companies, I said it was, it got to be pretty big, we had like 1,100 employees. Uh, I did set up a anonymous bulletin board and we had a very uh, useful public forum system that was great, an important part of the system. Uh, the anonymous thing broke down into a shit show almost immediately and uh, we just deleted it. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it's, I know it's controversial, particularly amongst the blockchainers. Uh, and in fact, one of my objections to blockchain as it's currently uh, promoted uh, is that it uh, is, uh, encourages anonymity. Uh, it claims it's pseudo-anonymous, but I can show you ways to hack the pseudo-anonymity and turn it into functional anonymity relatively straightforwardly. And so I go the other way. If, uh, if you're ashamed to put your name on it, God damn it, you probably shouldn't do it. <laughs> okay, well, here's a question then. Um, what about vote delegation? Because I, I would imagine there's behavioral change when you know you've got all this power, this backing behind you. And what if you wanted to delegate, delegate to someone, but you didn't want them to know they have your delegate vote? Is there any use for that in your mind? That's an interesting question. Never heard that one proposed before. That would be weird. Uh, well, here's the problem. The reason, one of the reasons for delegation uh, is you need to delegate to somebody who you know is actually going to follow the issues and vote. Uh, and in fact, in my form of liquid democracy, uh, I allow delegation to uh, not-for-profit organizations, uh, not just individuals. Uh, so that, for instance, you know, as I said, the Sierra Club for environmental issues, the NRA for gun rights. Uh, and I think that's important because the quality of the, your delegate is uh, important for the emergent sense-making capability of the system. And for them to be willing to put some effort into it, uh, they need to know they have a bunch of votes. Uh, you know, if you don't know you have more than one vote, who the hell is going to read the tax bill, right? Uh, <laughs> it ain't going to happen, right? Yeah, good point. Uh, and, and so I think it's very important that people know that they have the votes. Uh, whether they need to know whose vote they have is less obvious to me. Uh, but I think in terms of hygiene, in terms of being an easy way to con to beat things like vote buying, right? If people have uh, a non-realistic uh, looking group of supporters, you say, that looks like somebody, somebody bought these people on the internet. Uh, I think uh, radical transparency is a good thing. Right. In fact, I'm so goddamn radical. If you gave me my way, I'd make uh, the whole monetary system totally transparent. Incl you know, now, the, uh, uh, for the Emancipation Party, I did allow myself to be talked out of that position, and we'd allow a small amount of uh, anonymous money, about $2,000 per person per month. And we figure that if you've got vices that cost more than 2000 a month, uh, then you got a bigger problem. Uh, <laughs> but uh, truthfully, I think it'd be something to be said for every transaction you do being uh, world-readable. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. And I know that's the exact opposite of the blockchain people, but yeah. hey. All right, that's it for this part of the episode with Jim Rutt. To get the show notes, go to futurethinkers.org 133. To watch the full episode, become a member at futurethinkers.org members. Once you're there, you can sign up for our courses, workshops, and in-depth private calls designed to help you increase your sovereignty, resilience, and sense-making ability. To learn more about the Future Thinkers Smart Village, you can go to futurethinkers.org village. If you like this content, you might want to check out our Seven Ways to Adapt to the Future guidebook. Get it for free at futurethinkers.org slash sign up. 
You might also want to check out our Future Thinkers membership area. We have courses there to help you adapt to the changing world, build resilience, upgrade culture and society, and create meaning and purpose in your life. As well, you'll get access to our community, all of our unreleased content, private Zoom calls, live Q&As with guests, workshops and events, and more. Just go to members.futurethinkers.org. And if you enjoyed this video, please like, share, and comment. It really helps out our show more than you know. And if you want more like it, then subscribe and hit that bell icon to be notified of new videos. See you next time.